Let us pray. Lord, may the words that you've put into my heart and on my lips help us to know you and love you more. Amen. When I was about eight years old and in the third grade, <clears throat> I decided I wanted to be a priest. I was reared in a religious but not a spiritual family. That's usually the other way around. I had a, attended a parochial school since I was in kindergarten, and now I was big enough to walk the blocks to school without my mother. A church was attached to the school, and I went to Mass every morning for two reasons. The first reason is that some days my mother gave me some money, and there was a bakery across the street. And after communion, because in those days you had to fast, I'd go over and get a dollar's worth of anything that I wanted and chocolate milk. And the second reason that I, um, that I went to Mass is because I wanted the altar boy who was serving at Mass to get sick or not show up. And the priest would say, is there anyone out there who knows the responses to the Mass in Latin? And then he'd look directly at me and say, little girl, can you do it? And I would be ecstatic and stood up and said, yes, I can do it. And the rest would be history. But the truth was, this never happened. But I knew that I didn't want to be a priest, I just wanted to be an altar boy. <laughs> of course, this was never to happen because this was a boy thing in those days. I never knew why exactly, but I was hopeful. My theology professor in college was a Catholic nun. Her name was Sister Morris Allen, and I loved her. She had one of those deep Alabama draws, and she would call God a funny daddy. <laughs> I, I didn't understand all of the theological implications of this until many years later. She would tell me, though, that she knew I wouldn't stay in the church because I asked too many questions and I got too few answers that were acceptable. She was my mentor and my spiritual director until she died just a week after I was ordained. She was thrilled that I had become a priest. I think that this may have been a secret agenda of hers also. And she loved that I had married a priest. She was enamored of David. And I think this too may be of her agenda. But actually, the reason that I left the church wasn't philosophical or theological. I was in my doubting 20s, and whatever I was looking for and wherever I was looking, I couldn't find it, her, or him. And for a very churched person, church was a dead end for me. This particular Sunday, I went to Mass, and the person who read the epistle that morning stood up and announced it as St. Paul's letter to the Filipinos. I got up and I left. <laughs> I don't know if it was just hard for me, except that Paul would write a letter to the Filipinos or what, I wasn't very deep. I was religious, but not spiritual. I remained unchurched for a couple years, but I dropped my little children off on Sundays at a small Episcopal church because I had friends there and I knew that they would take care of them. I went home to sleep for a couple more hours. And then I heard that the church had suppers on Wednesday night for free. 
feed the stomach, feed the soul. I fell in love. And with her hilarious sense of humor and possibly a little bit of karma, God enjoyed one of the first epistles I read as a lay reader. I announced with my very nuanced voice, today's reading is from St. Paul's letter to the Filipinos. <laughs> I don't think anybody stood up and left because Episcopalians are way too polite. My road to ordination may not be very interesting to you, except possibly for one thing. It planted a seed, and it started with EFM. It wasn't called that then. It was called Theological Education by Extension, TEE. -E. I was in the second class way back in the beginning when more people started thinking about if all this Bible stuff had to do with uh, us personally, what did it have to do with us? And a priest friend of mine called and asked me if I'd be interested in a course that, that Sawani was offering that met weekly in a group, and we'd learn about the Bible, and we'd learn about theological re uh, reflection. I was a perfect candidate. I knew nothing about the Bible, and I had never heard a theological reflection. But it changed my life. I felt as if light bulbs were going off in my brain. And after the first month, I got my brand new Bible out, and I was going to color code the Pentateuch according to the documentary theory. Now, if some of you don't know what that is, I can recommend a good EFM group to you. EFM, or TEE then, wasn't and still isn't a road to ordination. I didn't know that I wanted to be ordained at that time. I didn't even know women could be ordained. This was, was so new in the church. But I believe that EFM is one of the best things that the church does. It moves. Just when you think you've got something understood, it gets away from your grasp. When I thought I had something or knew something in scripture figured out, I'd encounter another clue and I'd go off again. And then there are the EFM groups. Folks who figure out that this place is a, is a place to figure things out not just to memorize the Bible. It's a time for being spiritual and not just religious. It's time for deep digging, searching. It's time to turn everything on its head. It's time to find out who we are in the whole scope of God, to figure out who God is. This year's class just ended, my class just ended, and uh, they wrote their spiritual autobiographies. They, I have them write their spiritual autobiographies in the beginning, and it's kind of like who I am and, you know, things like that. But this time I had them write their spiritual autobiographies, um, and I tried to scare them. And I told them it had to be a sermon. So I got a million terrified emails and questions about this. And the biographies were incredible. They were moving. They got it. They theologically reflected like crazy. I don't believe anyone is ever the same after experiencing EFM. I'm going into my 12th year of EFM, four years as a student and eight years as a mentor and a student. We studied the Hebrew Testament this year and once more I've seen it with new eyes. And I especially like Samuel. We've been hearing Samuel here in church and a lot of other church since after Easter. Samuel is long and incredibly important, but it's, it's a long thing, so I've done a nutshell of uh, Samuel 
that I think the things are important. So this is Samuel in a nutshell for me. The Israelites, who were prone to whining anyway, because everybody else had a king, and why couldn't they have one as well? And they complained to Samuel, who was their prophet. Now Samuel was getting old, and not too much had changed under his prophesying, and actually things weren't going very well for the Israelites. That's why they wanted a king. And Samuel, their prophet, and God were on a speaking relationship, and Samuel spoke to God about all of this. Needless to say, God wasn't very happy. And after God told Samuel all of the bad things that would happen if they had a human king, God says, okay, let them find out for themselves. They didn't seem to appreciate me as a king. And something else about Samuel, and as I said before, Samuel was a prophet, and prophets are a whole other story, but a great one. But basically, prophets aren't particularly popular because they say things that we don't want to hear. They tell us things that we don't like doing and we should be doing, and that would make us be better folks. They tell us what bad things will happen if we don't do these things. Prophets are usually found living on the outskirts of a place or a town, possibly for a fast getaway. Saul is the one who was chosen to lead the Israelites, and Saul has made a few mistakes along the way. One time, he and his army were preparing for battle against the Philistines, who did and said some really bad things about the Israelites. And Saul instructed his army with an oath, and that was important, not to eat anything before battle. This may have been to save time. If they were eating, they wouldn't have as much time to gather themselves up and be warlock. But it also had its problems. The army was so weak from hunger that they couldn't stand up to the Philistines, who were also very big men. Remember Goliath? Another thing Saul did that was frowned upon is that he overstepped his kingly boundaries. Prophets and priests did religious things, such as controlling religious rituals and practices, and kings were the head of the political and governing roles. And Saul overstepped his place and offered a burnt offering. This was a a priest and a prophet thing. But Saul was anxious that Samuel the prophet was going to be late for the offering, and Samuel felt like it needed to be done, and it needed to be done right now. So he took the prophet's role and made the offering himself. Samuel the prophet eventually got there and was really angry because this was not in Saul's job description. Maybe this doesn't sound so bad may even sound innocent. Saul was just trying to help out, and Samuel the prophet came across like a grumpy grouch. This is a long and laborious story of Samuel and Saul, and the more you read it, the more conclusions you can appropriate. So what has this story of Samuel and Saul got to do with us and God? Samuel the prophet, another story, Sam, Samuel um, the prophet um, God told them to go to war and to kill all of these people, this particular enemies. Kill everything and everyone that has a beating heart. Kill the men and the women and the children and the babies and the sheep and the oxen and the camels and the donkeys. Kill everything that breathes. God sounds harsh. 
at least to me. Maybe we just don't understand something. So Saul destroyed everything and everyone that he thought was bad, except the enemy king and some of the king's friends who he thought were nice and the animals who were precious. This sounds reasonable. So Saul told Samuel that he had done everything that God had told him to do. And Samuel the prophet said, well then, what's all that bleeding and mooing that I hear? And Saul said, I just brought back the enemy king and some folks who've been nice, and I picked out and brought back the best and the prettiest animals to sacrifice to God. I killed everyone and everything else. Stop, says Samuel. God told you what to do, and you didn't do it. But I did, said Saul. I brought back the, king, the cream of the crop, the precious animals, and one enemy king so that you could sacrifice it to God. Saul didn't get it, and we just don't get it some of the time. What happens when we know what God wants, but we don't do it? Or even worse, when we only do part of it, the part of it that's most convenient to us, the part that doesn't cause us too much hardship or too much thought. After all, we know what's best for us. We can fill in our own issues and conditions, but almost all of us, if we're honest, know how easy it is to make our own understanding and knowing what God is demanding of us. We want to honor God in our own way. We want to make our own adjustments to what is more convenient, what we think is righteous to us. We are religious, but we're not spiritual. Remember the story about the rich young ruler? I'm ready, God. What will you have me do? And God says, my boy, give everything, and I mean everything, away. And the young ruler says, well, God, let me ponder that for a minute, and I'll get back to you. One of the most impactful things that I have learned in my theological education and in EFM as well is that I'm pretty sure that God isn't wishy-washy. And this is something that we better learn straight on in the beginning. God is demanding. In Hebrew, the word katar, to cut a deal, is what God does with us. God cuts a deal with us. God will do this and we will do that. There aren't any exceptions. This is the deal, Qatar. God offers this and demands that we do that. But God doesn't have a dividing line for those who do what's expected and those who do some of what is expected. We keep a little space for ourselves so it's just not so darn hard or inconvenient. Our society struggles with issues and standards. Seniority goodwill, old boy, good, good boy, a, a good girl networks, or avoidance of conflict stand in our way. Judgment that we think is unfairly given stands in our way. Money stands in our way. Time stands in our way. Looking good for our neighbor stands in the way. These things stands in our way for choosing God's demands, the demands that aren't negotiable. Saul and Samuel were conflicting and conflicted souls, and it seems as if they both had vested interests in doing what they thought was right, at least what was right for them. 
who is right. We'll be studying this until kingdom comes. More will be written, and more will be studied, and more will be debated. We are Samuel and Saul. We have all acted in Samuel and Saul ways. Samuel subscribed to the demands of God, possibly keeping old ideologies to appease himself and those of others. We've always done it like this, says Samuel. And Saul made his choice as well. He confessed his sins of choice and tore his clothing. I'm doing the best I can, he said. And then ultimately he fell on his sword. And then the Israelites got a new king with beautiful eyes. Lord, open our minds and our hearts to your demands. Amen.